In last year's Christmas sermon, I referenced the Nigerian author Chimananda Adedichi. In 2009, she gave a celebrated TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. Adedichi is from a middle-class Nigerian family. She spoke of an experience that she had coming to a university in the United States. And she says this, I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked me where I had learned to speak English so well. and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my, quote, tribal music. and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. She assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this. She felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe, In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way. No possibility of feelings more complex than pity. No possibility of a connection as human equals. Well, the truth is, when we accept a single story of a people group, we do nurture misconceptions and we adopt unhealthy stereotypes. My point in citing Adichie last Christmas was to ask whether a single story of Jesus of Nazareth will do. Will one story help us to really understand him? For instance, is Jesus a king or a servant? How about a lion or a lamb? Is he the everlasting father or an infant child, the king of the Jews or the king of the Gentiles, a poverty-stricken refugee or the Messiah sung by angel hordes? The answer is yes. All of that and much more. Which metaphor best describes Jesus? Shepherd? Vine, fountain, stream, bread, light, rock, seed, sun, sword? Let's return to John 1 and ask yet another question. What name, what title should we give to Jesus? Is there a single name that reveals his true identity? Jesus has many names in the Gospels, just as God has many titles throughout the Bible. Do you ever notice just how many names there are of Jesus just right here in John chapter 1? Let's note them. You may want to underline them. So they're marked out in your Bible so you can go back and recover them. In verse 1, Jesus is the Word or the Logos. 
He is also called in verse 4, the life and the light. These are metaphors. These are metaphoric names. In verse 14, He is the only Son from the Father. Verse 17, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the only God. Verses 19 through 23 record John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus. Verse 23, John quotes Isaiah, who says, Make straight the way of the Lord. And the word Lord in Isaiah is Yahweh. This is God's covenant name revealed at the burning bush. Jesus is Yahweh. In verses 29, In 36, Jesus is the Lamb of God. In the verse 44, 34, sorry, He is the Son of God. In verse 38, two of John, John the Baptist's disciples called Jesus Rabbi. One of those disciples was named Andrew. Andrew found his brother Simon Peter and exclaimed at the end of verse 41, We have found the Messiah. And for clarification, John adds, which means Christ. Messiah means Christ. Then in verse 45, we discover the name that Jesus grew up with. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Jesus was a common name in first century Israel. There are many people who had this name in Josephus, other than Jesus of Nazareth. Today, when people have the same name, we distinguish them by using their last names also. So, for instance, if I say George, you may not know who I'm talking about. In our church, we have a George Hakama, we have a George Mann. So we use their last names also, so you know, oh, that George... Well, in the first century, people didn't have last names the way we do today. Rather, they were identified by their place of residence. The Jesus of John's Gospel is the Jesus from Nazareth. The Jesus who lived up there in the hill country west of the Sea of Galilee. Archaeological evidence suggests that Nazareth had a population of about 500 in the first century. If half of those were males, then Jesus was one of 250 males in Nazareth. And it's quite possible there were other Jesuses even right there in Nazareth. And so Jesus is identified further as the son of Joseph. And Joseph elsewhere is known as the carpenter. In Matthew 13, Jesus is called the carpenter's son, He was identified by his adoptive father. So Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, that's the Jesus that we're talking about as opposed to many others in the first century. And the name, of course, speaks to Jesus' humble origins. A carpenter shop in the backwater village of Nazareth was pretty much the last place you would expect the next king of Israel to come from, much less God himself. But would you notice how Jesus' humble origins contrast with the magnificent declaration of Nathanael in verse 49? 
Nathanael dashes off three names for Jesus in a rapid succession. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's three more names. Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. Well, those three names do not harmonize with Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And that's because no single story of Jesus will do. If Adichie's roommate was shocked, you can only imagine how people were completely unprepared to grasp Jesus' true identity. Who is this Jesus? Now, what does Jesus call himself? We have yet another name in John chapter 1. Now, two weeks ago, we harmonized the gospel accounts and we noticed that Jesus launched his public ministry with a question. What are you seeking? We're going to come back to that question later on. Not today. Well, today, though, would you locate the first recorded statement in the New Testament where Jesus names himself. It's found in verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Nathanael just called Jesus the Son of God. And Jesus responds by calling himself the Son of Man. Are you confused? So who is he? The Son of God? The Son of Man? And what on earth does Jesus mean by suggesting there's some sort of a ladder between heaven and himself with angels coming and going? Well, come back next week and we will consider that. My point this week is Jesus has many names right here, even in John chapter 1. He is the Word, the life, the light, the Son from the Father, Christ, the only God, Yahweh, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, Son of Joseph, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. Fifteen ways Jesus is referred to just in one chapter It's no wonder Albert Einstein said of Jesus, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. Well, no single story of Jesus will do. No single metaphor will do. And no single name will do. Now, friends, I realize that John 1 has taken a long time to work through. And I have actually, in my mind, kind of gone back a couple of times and said, am I going too slowly? I had one person tell me, go slower. Uh, but that was only one person. All right? So <laughs> we are going to average about uh, four, chapter, four sermons per chapter moving forward. I do want you to know that. But I thought today, as we enter the Christmas season... I want to take some time and just really drill down on one name here in chapter 1. We'll return to verse 51 next week. But let's focus our attention this morning 
on the name found in verse 17. John introduces Jesus as Jesus Christ. I was just listening this morning, knowing what I was going to preach on, to the number of times the name Christ came up. With John speaking, or Andrew praying, or the songs that we sang, I actually didn't count, but I think it was 20, 25 times we've already named the name Christ in this service this morning. Do we really understand this term, Jesus Christ? I don't have to tell you that our culture has been clamoring to remove Christ from Christmas. I dare say that many Christians, Christ followers, don't really comprehensively understand the term Christ. What is this name that we want to keep in the holidays? Christ, Jesus Christ, do we understand the name? Can we explain the name to a neighbor, to a coworker, to someone standing in a line on Black Friday just ready to shove their way in to get that alluring Christmas deal? Who is this Jesus Christ whom we gather to celebrate? What are we celebrating? This Christmas. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, the first line of the New Testament, Matthew 1 and verse 1, reads this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 and verse 18 also states that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But did you know that after those two initial references, Matthew never again uses the name Jesus Christ? Mark 1 1 states the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that's the single time Mark uses the name Jesus Christ. Does it surprise you that Luke never refers to Jesus Christ? The whole gospel. And John uses the name Jesus Christ only twice. And we just read one of those uses right there in chapter 1, verse 17. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and John use the name Jesus Christ in their introductions so we know the subject of their books, but curiously, they do not use that name in their histories. Luke never uses the term Jesus Christ. No one in the Gospels ever addresses Jesus as Jesus Christ. Did you know this? No one ever calls him Jesus Christ. Andrew claimed he had found the Messiah, the Christ, but the disciples never referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ. The single exception where we find the words Jesus Christ together is in John chapter 17, so let's turn there. John chapter 17. Jesus in John 17 celebrates a final Passover with his disciples. He will soon venture into a dark night, reeking with animal sacrifice. He will meet his betrayer. He will be condemned. And he will die. What does Jesus say in this final prescient hour 
before descending in the dark Gethsemane, the valley of the shadow of death. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Beyond the gospel introductions, you just read the single reference to the name Jesus Christ in the gospels. That's it. Jesus prepares to die But strangely, he refers to his authority over all flesh to grant eternal life. And then he refers to himself as Jesus Christ. And that's all the information we get from the Gospels on the name Jesus Christ. So let's broaden our investigation by turning back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16. You probably know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and later translated into Greek. In Greek, the term Christos or Christ translates the Hebrew term Mashiach. The Mashiach has been anglicized as Messiah. Messiah and Christ These are the same term, just two different languages, Messiah and Christ. The Hebrew term Messiah means anointed. A man whom God appointed as king was anointed by pouring oil over his head. Now, 1 Kings 16 and verse 1 tells of the anointing of Israel's most illustrious king, King David. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And now verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And you may want to underline the term anointed. The Hebrew verb translated anointed is the term from which we get our term Messiah. Or if it's translated in the Greek, Christ. David was anointed king. David was anointed Messiah. David was anointed Christ. That's what the term means. He was made a king. And King David stood at the head of a long line of anointed kings, messiahs, who reigned in Judah before the land was finally overrun by the Babylonians. 
But how long was David's anointed line of Messiah supposed to last? Well, skip ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. And here we have a record of the Davidic covenant that God communicated with David through the prophet Nathan. And let's pick out two important truths in this covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 12, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Raise up is very interesting. Who shall come from, notice this, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice that emphasis on David's body, David's humanity. David's physical descendant will establish a kingdom. And how long will that kingdom last? Well, verse 13 gives us a second truth. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David will have a flesh and blood descendant from his own body who will establish an everlasting kingdom. It goes on forever. The text obviously requires a king whose reign does not end in death. Well, that sounds like we need someone, in the words of Jesus, John 17, who has authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So who is this anointed Messiah whom the Old Testament readers should search for? Well, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. John and I did not coordinate this morning, but he made reference to the predictions of the Old Testament prophets, which is exactly what we're doing this morning. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 11. There are, of course, many prophets that we could turn to, but I want to turn to just two this morning. We will notice in Isaiah 11 a remarkable prophecy concerning David's descendant. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, as we just read back in Samuel, was David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And notice these delightful words. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We are looking for a son of David that's full of the spirit. And remember what happened to Jesus at his baptism? We are told the spirit descended on him and remained on him. Now hold on to that emphasis on the Spirit. It's going to become very important for us when we reach the end of the sermon. For now, let's continue with Isaiah's prophecy. And there's no way we can really explain all this this morning. But Isaiah says this, With righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And notice these words. For the earth, the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, that is a glorious description of a perfect ruler and of a creation that has been restored from the fall. In that creation, there will be no miscarriage of justice, no pain and suffering and devouring animals, no poison fanged snakes will ravish that creation. The earth shall know the Lord when this Messiah comes to rule. And now turn to Zechariah chapter 9, a passage we have turned to frequently. The prophet Zechariah also tells of this coming king. But he notes that the predicted Messiah will come to Jerusalem in a curious way. You would expect a delivering king to come on a war stallion. Or perhaps in a majestic chariot overlaid with gold and precious stones. That's how all the invading emperors trampled their way through Israel. But Zechariah proclaims in chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. What a strange way for the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. But Zechariah continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, doesn't that sound like Isaiah chapter 11? The Messiah brings an end of war and peace all the way down to the ends of the earth. And make no mistake about it. The Gospels tell us, are you ready for this? That Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus came jostling up to the gates of Jerusalem on his donkey. Matthew said it. This was fulfilled. This was the fulfillment of Zechariah. Now, there's still much here that has to happen. But Jesus really was fulfilling that donkey ride prophecy. Matthew said it. And there is a problem that bothers us. Neither Isaiah 11 nor Zechariah 9 say anything about the Messiah passing through dark Gethsemane to a horrific death on a Roman cross. 
Well, perhaps no single story of Jesus will do. It is true that Isaiah has a marvelous passage concerning a suffering servant. And it does indeed seem to foreshadow the cross. But is the suffering servant the Messiah? We read the stories after the fact. But how could anyone have possibly known those are the same person? Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's out there in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah 53, and Philip comes along. And he asks Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? It was confusing. And the point that I made in our last year's Christmas sermon, again, is that no single story of Jesus will do. You have to take all those stories and figure out how they all come together in Jesus. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the servant. You must embrace the Messiah as a servant, and you must embrace a servant as the Messiah. You've got to embrace both. And not until the resurrection did the apostles begin to like put it all together. Oh, now we see it. All those puzzle pieces come together, and the portrait is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, with that in place, let's think our way right back into the New Testament. Again, the name Jesus Christ is extremely rare in the Gospels. No one in the Gospels actually calls Jesus Jesus Christ, except for the single time that Jesus referred to himself as Jesus Christ. However, the term Christ, not Jesus Christ, but Christ appears often. And would you consider two facts about the term Christ? First, Christ is often preceded by the definite article the. The Christ. The Christ refers to the office of a king. It's not a last name. It's the office of a king. Who is the Christ? And again, in the Gospels, Christ is not Jesus' last name. But there is considerable discussion concerning whether Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, might be the Christ. Herod asked the wise men where the Christ should be born. Andrew exclaimed to Simon Peter in John 1, we just read it, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. John the Baptist heard from prison about the deeds of the Christ. And Peter even declared Jesus to be the Christ. And then he promptly denied that Jesus would die and resurrect. Secondly, discussion about the Christ intensifies enormously following Jesus' donkey ride right up to the city gates. If you just look at that name, the Christ, and you follow Jesus into Jerusalem, all of a sudden it just like is raised to a crescendo. Like, who is this guy? Is he the Christ? 
And friends, Jesus was very deliberate about that donkey ride. He made arrangements to ride up to Jerusalem and fulfill that prophecy. And he pressurized the question, are you the Christ? On the Temple Mount, Jesus said to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus warned, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. On trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus debated his identity. If you are the Christ, tell us, they said. And Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Jesus was berated by the high priest. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Mocking Jesus, Roman soldiers taunted, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Bringing Jesus before Pilate, the Jewish leaders exclaimed, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate, seeking to exonerate himself, queried the crowds, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Reviling Jesus on the cross, the, the chief priests and the scribes exclaimed, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And you can see uh, that whole discussion about the Christ is really intensified in that final week leading right up to the cross. And finally, one of the two criminals crucified with Jesus in desperation cried out, Are you not the Christ? Save us and yourself. The criminal's question just rings out of the darkest hour in human history. Are you the Christ? Well, save us. And Jesus dies. So here's my question. Why do you call Jesus, Jesus Christ? when no one in the Gospels actually calls him by that name. Why do you come into a service like this and John gets up and says Jesus Christ and Andrew prays in Jesus Christ's name and you sing the words Christ and nobody's stopping and saying, what is it? why are we singing this? Why do, you, why do you acknowledge Jesus as Jesus Christ? Do you really know why? Well, let's turn to Acts 2. Let's turn to Acts 2 and really get this solved. In Acts 2, for the first time in recorded church history, we hear a disciple of Jesus use the name Jesus Christ. And we thought Peter had it right back in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi. But he came up short in the end, resisting Jesus' death and resurrection. But now Jesus has died. And Peter preaches the first sermon in church history at Pentecost. And verse 38 records his concluding appeal. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, look at this, in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the first time we hear a follower of Jesus call him Jesus Christ. And would you consider an amazing truth? From Peter's sermon forward, by my rough count, there are more than 200 instances in the remainder of the New Testament of people referring to Jesus as Jesus Christ. These two words are indissolubly united. If you look at the first sentence of 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 John, Jude, and Revelation, you will find a reference to Jesus Christ. And that's just the first verse. So what happened? In the final week, there was enormous questions, just rum- there were enormous questions just rumbling through Jerusalem about whether Jesus might be the Christ, the long-awaited Son of David to bring peace to the nations, to inaugurate a perfect creation where the lion and the lamb lie down together. Maybe he's finally come. And Jesus deliberately just drove those questions to a crescendo with his donkey ride. And he died a cruel death with the criminal's question ringing in our ears. Are you the Christ? Save us and yourself. Then suddenly hundreds, then thousands, then millions began calling Jesus Jesus Christ. And the gospel writers go back, introduce the gospels with Jesus Christ. So can you explain all that? Well, that's exactly what Peter does. Look back two verses. Acts 2, verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has, look at the next word, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter actually makes two important claims. First, God made Jesus Christ. He made Jesus Messiah. Second, we can know that for certain. Let me say it again. Second, we can know for certain that God made Jesus the Christ. Peter says we really can know that for certain. Well, no one, including John the Baptist himself, fully understood who Jesus was before he died. But Peter says we really can know this for certain. But how? Well, the answer is we have to skip back a little bit more to verse 22 and look at Peter's sermon. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, so Peter here is speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the same person we met back there in John chapter 1, son of Joseph. 
That poor man from Nazareth died a horrible crucifixion, crucifixion death in Jerusalem. Now, what's his fate? But keep reading. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was literally impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Remember that, the sin of David? He was to reign forever. Well, you can't reign forever if you're dead. And guess who predicted the resurrection of his own son? King David. Keep reading. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. The body cannot corrupt. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now that's a little bit complex, but if you keep reading, you get Peter's interpretation of the passage. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. All right, so David's dead and gone. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, want, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, we read about that back in 2 Samuel, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, according to Peter's inspired interpretation of David's psalm, Jesus had a body that literally could not corrupt. It could not decay. And we shouldn't be surprised. Listen again to Jesus' words in John 17, where for the first time he refers to himself as Jesus Christ. You have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And within less than 24 hours, Jesus was dead. But does Jesus indeed have authority over all flesh? Is he indeed Jesus Christ with authority over all flesh? Well, how would you know? The answer is God raised him up. And that's the context in which you have to read verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain in the context of the resurrection, you can know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection was the definitive proof that God made Jesus the Christ. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, as the resurrected Christ. God made Jesus King. Now, friends, far too many Christians, including many 
I think, well-meaning, dispensational, evangelical, fundamental, premillennial, pre-tribulational, Baptist view Jesus' reign as a future reality. As if we're waiting for that to happen sometime down the road down there. Friends, that is an emphatic denial of the name Jesus Christ. Christians everywhere throughout the empire spoke the name Jesus Christ as a testimony to the truth that God made Jesus the Christ at the resurrection. And that's why in the first sentence of Romans where Paul uses the term Jesus Christ four times, Paul says the resurrection was a declaration, a decree that rumbles throughout all ages that Jesus Christ is Lord already. It's already happened. And that's why at the resurrection, Jesus claimed, end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He's not talking about the future. He's talking about what happened at the resurrection. It's all been given to him. God made him king. God made him the Christ. God anointed him 2,000 years ago. And that's why Paul in Acts 17 goes to Thessalonica and he reasons with the Jews. Here's what the text says from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And Paul says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In Acts 18, Paul does the same thing at Corinth testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Friends, apostolic preaching insisted that the crucified Jesus is the resurrected Christ. Let me say that again. The crucified Jesus is the resurrected Christ. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ. Now be very careful. Jesus did not become God at the resurrection. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus has always been the second member of the Godhead. I've explained this previously, but it's so important that we get it right. And friends, Jesus, as the Logos, the life and the light, had all authority before the virginal conception. But Jesus had all authority as God, not man. Remember what God told David. The Messiah will come from your body. At the resurrection, God made a man. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the Christ, with permanent authority over all things. And that's why Paul told the Greeks in Athens, God had fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, get this, by a man whom he appointed by raising him from the dead. God appointed a man as the Christ by raising him from the dead. Jesus has all authority as God. He had that before the incarnation. But at the resurrection, God put a man 
the resurrected Christ and permanent authority over all things. So friends, what are we celebrating this Christmas season? Well, Christmas is a celebration of the present rule of Jesus Christ over the nations. Do you need to celebrate this news in a world that is apparently, outward appearances, so full of turmoil, anxiety? Are you concerned, anxious about the state of the world? You want to get on the news and read about Omicron? Omicron variant? I mean, how many more are coming? What does this mean? Friends, the new humanity, the eternal Messiah, the everlasting Son from the body of David has already come. We are not waiting for the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, came in humility and he resurrected with authority over all, over all flesh to rule all nations. Friends, the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection together form the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. Oftentimes you think, oh, that happened at the virgin birth. It's actually both. The resurrection makes the Incarnation permanent. The Gentile wise men declared Jesus to be king of the Jews at his birth. But Jesus' resurrection declared Jesus to be ruler of all nations. The resurrected king is ruler of all nations. So Christmas, friends, is indeed a celebration, not just the future rule of Christ, and believe me, there's a beautiful future coming. Isaiah 11 described it. That's still to come. But also, Christmas is a celebration of the present rule of Christ over the nations. That's why we come in here this morning to talk about Jesus Christ, because we do believe there is a Christ who was resurrected. And I just want to ask... What if that sovereign rule of the nations were to determine that Christmas is going to be different this year? I'm not making any predictions. But what if God wanted to make Christmas different this year? What if he determined a new coronavirus outbreak would sweep to the nations? It's his prerogative. He does rule the nations with a rod of iron. He judges them. What if he determines the death of a family member for you through these holidays? He has authority over all flesh, and he calls people home in his own time. It's his prerogative. What if all your presents are stuck on a dock in California? What if there are no gifts under your tree this year? Kids, are you okay with that? I'm looking at my kids. I think we have something to give them. Anyway, <laughs> what if inflation just cuts into your travel plan budget? It decreases your giving budget this year. Well, friends, I want to know, is there a gift that you would value above everything else? A gift that you would value above anything that you can wrap up and stick under the tree? How about this gift from the Messiah? Complete forgiveness for your sins. I mean, that's it. Just all of them just atone for. Complete forgiveness. And on top of that, the gift of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, that's actually what you get when you confess the name Jesus Christ. That's exactly what you get. Look at Peter's application in verse 38. This is the application of a sermon. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So you confess the name Jesus Christ. And what do you get? Well, keep reading. The forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you confess that at the resurrection, God made Jesus, Jesus Christ, when you confess that, your sins are forgiven and you receive the wonderful gift of the Spirit. And remember how Isaiah described the Spirit resting on Jesus? Remember I told you to hold on to that? Here's what Isaiah said. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Friends, when you confess Jesus as Jesus Christ, guess what? That same Spirit is given permanently to you. That's the gospel truth. That Spirit has already come to prepare you to live in that great kingdom future that we read about in Isaiah 11. Can you think of a greater Christmas gift this year? I mean, seriously, a greater gift? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might and knowledge, that Spirit being given to you as a gift. You can't wrap that up and put it under a tree. It's too big for that. It's too colossal for that. It surely surpasses anything that we could give to each other. So friends, Jesus has already been made the Christ, and the Spirit has already been given to you as a gift. That's what we should celebrate this Christmas. The resurrection, friends, inaugurated, inaugurated the rule of Christ. And the resurrection fills us with the Spirit. So we pray together. Father, I pray that in this Christmas season, our hearts, our minds, our affections, our attitudes, our joys will be turned towards you, towards your gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would just fill our hearts with joy. I pray that the Spirit would reign. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look beyond the commercialism that surrounds us and that concerns us. That, Lord, we would truly delight in your gospel, your good news. Every gift that we wrap up and put under the tree will, will decay. We'll grow weary of it. It'll break. It'll corrupt. We thank you for the energizing and renewing power of the Holy Spirit who is already at work transforming us and preparing us to live in Christ's kingdom. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.